Well, thank you very much. I want to bring you greetings. I want to bring you greetings from two groups. One is my home church at Wesley Hearts Baptist Church. I want to let you know that we are aware of you and we love you. <laughs> we pray for you regularly. I love your pastor and I want, to know, want you to know that as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we greet you in the love and the name of our mutual savior, Jesus Christ. And I also wanted to bring you greetings from Pastor Ian. Now, I haven't talked to him for a while, but I want to tell you something. He loves you. He really does. We get together to pray um, regularly, and uh, he always wants to pray for you. And I just want to let you know, I've got to know Pastor Ian over the past several years, and I can tell you with a high degree of confidence that he loves you. I want to tell you something else. Um, he knows you love him. And that's so special. Sometimes being a pastor can be a little on the lonely side. He's not lonely. He knows that you love him. And uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the way you minister to my friend and brother, Ian Hales. So thank you. Uh, at Wesley Heights Baptist Church, we're preparing to go through a year-long sermon series next year in Revelation. Can I just tell you something from Revelation? The kingdom of God is coming in its perfect form, and it's going to be great. It's going to be great. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus, you're going to be there, and it's going to be great. It's going to be there in its perfect form because the earth is going to be perfect and not so perfect right now. The earth gives us cancer. Um, we have car accidents, uh, financial reversals. Bad things happen on today's earth. Well, in the, when the kingdom comes in its final form, the earth is going to be renewed and it's going to be perfect and it's going to be great. And by the way, not only is the earth going to be perfect, but you're going to be perfect. And I'm going to be perfect. Right now we sin. Right now we're a bowl of insecurities. Right now we say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. But we're going to be perfect. I want to let you know the kingdom of God is coming in its perfect form, and it's going to be great. That's next year in Revelation. This year, our church is going through the Gospel of Matthew, and the message of Matthew is not that the kingdom of com is coming. The message of Matthew is the kingdom has come, but not in its perfect form. It's in, in, its augural, in an augural form. It's come. The Holy Spirit lives within us. That's terrific. Our sins are genuinely forgiven. That's terrific. Our destiny has changed from hell to heaven. That's terrific. But the earth isn't perfect. And you're not perfect. And you know what that means? That means that the kingdom of God right now has problems. We get ourselves in tangles. I'm mad at you. And these guys are mad at me. Because we're not on a perfect earth and we're not perfect. So as we exist in the kingdom now, conflicts arise. Rhubarb happens. Sometimes we're not happy with one another. What do we do when we're living in the imperfect form of the kingdom and conflicts are happening? We are not at peace with each other. And that's what Matthew 18 is about. And I suppose if I wanted to preach a sermon on Matthew 18, there's a lot in there. Uh, I could say, do you notice in, in the beginning of the passage, it says, um, if your brother sins against you, the first part of conflict resolution is make sure it's your conflict. Make sure your brother has sinned against you. 
you know, we've always got people in the church who want to be everybody's Holy Spirit, and they want to solve all these conflicts that aren't really theirs. Man, if it's not yours, keep your mouth shut and put a smile on your face. When this scripture applies to when your brother has sinned against you, if it's not your offense, leave it alone. You can pray for it. You can call for God's blessing, but just leave it alone because the scriptures say if your brother sins against you. And did you notice through the passage it says, keep the circle as tight as possible. Go alone. Go alone. And if that doesn't work, take two or three. And if that doesn't work, take the whole church. But keep the circle as small as possible because the larger the circle, the harder it is to resolve these conflicts. There's a lot in Matthew 18 uh, that we could preach on. But basically what the Bible is saying is when we have conflicts with one another, we only have two choices. You can go or you can let go. If you have a problem with someone in the body of Christ, you can go to them and speak to them about it. Or you can just let go. Hey, it's not that big a deal. I don't want to make an issue with this. I'm just going to emotionally let go. But have you found that that's hard to do? I don't want to do either of those things. When I'm in conflict with somebody, I don't want to go. I don't want to do that hard relational work. I'm not, I'm not, okay, just forget it. I'm not going to that person. But I'm not emotionally letting go either. I'm just going to go on a slow burn. Because I don't want to do the relational work, but I do want the fun of mocking them in my mind. I do want to try to damage their reputation. I'm going to go, just not to them. Did you hear what... Pastor Ian did? What's the guy thinking about? I don't even know about Pastor. Maybe he's not even saved. Did you ever think of that? Blah, 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 blah about all these other people. You're going, but not to the right people. We find that so difficult to go or to let go because we want to take that middle path. I'm not going and I'm not let going. I'm just going to be mad. I'm just going to talk to people who are not generally involved. Why do we do that? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why is our tendency always to, we don't go and we don't let go? Can I give you two reasons? Number one is we're sinners. Going is hard relational work. Going is becoming vulnerable. Going is starting a conversation and you don't know how it's going to end. And we avoid that. Letting go is forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard too. I don't want to let go of my bitterness. I don't want to let go of my perceived defenses. You know, when we do have conversations with the offender, they're all in our head. Have you done this? You're offended by somebody, and you have this long, involved conversation with the person in your head. And of course, in your version of the conversation, you are super brilliant. All your points fit together, and they're erudite, and the guy is just withering under your blistering logic. Here's the problem. He doesn't know we had that conversation. So you come next Sunday, and you're giving daggers out your eyes because we've worked ourselves into a real nice bitterness. He knows nothing about it, probably doesn't even remember the offense because to you it's a big deal. To him, he doesn't even remember it. 
We need to go or let go, and one of the reasons we don't is because we're sinners. But may I say there's another reason we don't go, and that's the topic of this morning's sermon. Sometimes we don't go, not because we're just, we are sinners, but not because we don't want it resolved, not because we're afraid. We don't go to the person because we're pretty sure it's not going to work. We're going to go to them and say, hey, you've really offended me in such and such a way, and they say, you're too sensitive, and you say, well, I'm not really that sensitive, and I think others have noticed it, well, no one's ever talked to me about it, and I think it's fine, and I think you've got the problem. And then Matthew 18, instead of bringing resolution, it brings escalation. And people say, I, I, I want to go, I want to have this resolved, but I can't because I'm pretty sure it's not going to work. I'm pretty sure it's just gonna escalate then blow up. You know, I do a lot of counseling and sometimes it's married couples. It's very normal for married couples to have a list of topics that they no longer talk about. And they don't talk about them because we tried that and then we got into a fight and then we tried it again and then we got into a fight and then we tried it. And so now we both decided not to talk. And by the way, the longer that list is, the less healthy the marriage is. But they don't talk because it just never works out. It always escalates. It always ends up to, in a mushroom cloud over their home. Today's sermon is about how can we reverse that? How can we be the kind of people that when someone Matthew 18's us, it's much more likely to end in resolution than escalation. Or when we have to Matthew 18 someone else, it's much more likely to end in an actual resolution rather than an escalation. What does the Bible say about what we can do to make us the kind of church where conflicts, and they are going to happen. We are not in a perfect earth. You are not perfect. The only two perfect people in this church at all are me and my son. And I'm not that sure about him. So conflicts are going to happen. We're not that perfect. So how do we increase the likelihood that when conflicts come up, we can deal with them scripturally and they're not going to escalate out of control, they're actually going to lead to resolution? How do we do that? Well, you know, the, the secret is in the passage itself. And I asked Mark to emphasize it when he read it and he did a beautiful job. There's a repeated word in Matthew 18 that very few people recognize. Did you notice it? Listen. Go to your brother, and if he listens to you. By the way, if he listens to you, you haven't won an argument. That was never the goal. You've gained a brother. But if he doesn't, take two or three witnesses. And if he listens. And if that doesn't work, take it before the church. And if he listens. And then, if he doesn't Listen, even then, four times, four times. The key to making Matthew 18 work is becoming a biblical listener. And I have bad news for you. You're probably a very poor listener. And I have even worse news for you. You probably don't know it. May I say that I know thousands of evangelical Christians, and I know less than a dozen good listeners. 
We are naturally very poor listeners, and we don't even know we're poor listeners. What Bible truth can we study? What can we meditate on? What can we allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us that will make us good biblical listeners so that when conflicts come up, and they're going to come up. By the way, don't leave the church when there's conflicts. Like, have you ever seen that movie Casablanca? where the prefect of police closes down Rick's Americano because there's gambling. And he says, I'm shocked, shocked to hear that there's gambling. And just as he says that, a, uh, one of the person, people working at the casino says, you're winnings, monsieur. Don't be shocked that there's conflict in the church any more than there's gambling in a casino. There's going to be conflicts. But how do we become biblical listeners? What can the Bible say? And I would just ask you to turn your, to your Bibles to Matthew, or Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. We're just going to meditate on one verse this morning, just one verse. But if we can really allow the Holy Spirit to install this verse in our souls, to wash it over our hearts, we will become much better listeners. And when we become better listeners, Matthew 18 stops this escalation and starts this resolution. And Matthew 18 isn't the experience, it's the ah experience. Proverbs 18, 13, if one... Okay, so I don't really know what the rest of this verse says, but it's if one tells me it's about to describe a situation that people get into. And because it's a proverb, I expect that it's gonna comment on that situation somehow. If one lets their hair grow, you'll need more shampoo. If one plays in traffic, you'll probably get hit. If one reads a lot, you'll probably learn a lot. I don't know what the situation is, but the, the structure of the first two words tells me that this verse is going to give me a situation, and because it's a proverb, I expect it's going to give me some comment or advice about that particular situation. If one gives an answer, okay, well, this applies to everybody. Because we all have to give in. By the way, did you guys get a chance to pick up hot dogs for the upcoming barbecue? And how did the Blue Jays do last night? Like I hear he was on a no-hitter. We're, we're constantly, by the way, how's the car? Did you get that fixed? We're constantly in life situations where we have to give an answer. So whatever this verse is going to say, it definitely applies to us because we live our lives in the situation where we're called upon to give an answer. If one gives an answer before he hears... Ah, if one gives an answer, isn't the whole situation. There's a modifying phrase. It's not just if you give an answer, it's if you give an answer before you hear. That's the situation I'm talking about. That's what I want to give you advice on, says the Holy Spirit through His, through his Word. If one gives an answer before he hears, and by the way, may I tell you that we do this all the time. We are constantly giving an answer before we hear. We are constantly reaching conclusions before we've heard the facts. We are constantly, I remember one day, uh, and this has to do with my oldest son, Caleb. I remember, we homeschool our kids, by the way, right through kindergarten, right through to university, and most days were good, but some days were bad. This was a bad day. And I had got seven, several calls at work 
about how the kids used to call me and they used to say, Mom's not being fair. And then I'd have to untangle this whole mess and Sandy would tell me what's really going on and so forth. And the, by the description I received, I knew that Caleb was up to his old tricks again. He, boy, he's an arguer and he was, and I just knew exactly what had happened. And I came through that door and I was mad. I was mad, and I started laying on the punishments, and Caleb kind of took it, and then he just went to his room. Hours later, I found out that that isn't at all what happened. And it wasn't Caleb's fault. And I reviewed my dialogue, and I noticed something about my dialogue with Caleb. There were no questions in it. I didn't ask a single question. It was just statement, 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 condemnation, statement, condemnation, punishment. That is an answer, given an example of answering before you hear, allowing yourself to get to a conclusion before you really know the facts. And we do it all the time. And I had to go to apologize to my son. I'm sorry. And the punishment is revoked. Do you know why we give an answer before we, don't, before we hear? Because we don't hear. And do you know why we don't hear? Because when people are talking to us, we have a mental dialogue going on inside our head. We're listening, just not to them. Have you ever noticed? People are talking to you, and you've got this whole conversation going on in your head. And then you rejoin them, they're like three pages down the dialogue and you don't know what they said. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. We don't listen because we've got a dialogue going on in our head. And um, we're not listening to the other person when we have that dialogue. And by the way, this is especially true when we sense a conflict coming on. When we sense come, someone coming to talk to us and they're not happy, they've got a complaint, they've got a, our dialogue just goes into overdrive. Can I just put, give, ask you to do a thought experiment? This morning's all about conflict resolution. What if someone comes to you at the end of the service and says, hey brother, that, was, uh, that sermon really gave me a lot to think about and, and I'd like to talk to you. Would that not start an internal dialogue in your head? What does he want to talk about? And you'd start reviewing. When was the last time I talked to this person? He says, well, let's, let's resolve it right now. And he starts to take you to a private place in the school. And as you're going to the private place, would you not be overwhelmed with internal dialogue? How many people are seeing that he's leading me to this place? It's obvious that we have a conflict. Maybe I should get in front of him so it looks like I'm taking him someplace. There's this dialogue going on. And then when he reveals what he wants to talk to you about, he says, uh, listen, I just have to... I just have to tell you something. You smell bad. <laughs> Man, the, the internal dialogue just goes into over... Me? I don't smell bad. I wear the very best... I, how could he say that? Did anyone else hear that? And we're all side in our head. By the way, he has given three pages of dialogue about what he means. We've missed it all. We've missed it all. We haven't heard a word he said because we are in our heads talking to ourselves. Why do we do this? 
Why do we do this? Why, why when someone brings us a legitimate concern, which maybe they're mistaken, but to the, in their mind it's legitimate, why when they bring us a legitimate concern do we go inside our head and we start this big conversation and all the time we're having this conversation we are definitely not listening to them and then we're going to give an answer before we hear. Why do we do that? Let me tell you what my experience is. We do that because when something happens, particularly a conflict, we go inside our head and we ask inward, selfish, narcissistic questions. And they come in all different forms, but let me tell you what they all boil down to. When something bad happens, by the way, you guys over here, I just got to tell I'm, I'm happy to be here at, at harvest, but you guys smell. You guys just smell. I can smell you from over here. Well, there's this internal dialogue. You know why? Because they're inside their heads right now asking one question. How does this make me feel? Well, not very good. How dare he? He's just a guest preacher. How dare, why would he? And couldn't he do it? Did he have to do it publicly? And I don't think I smell that bad. They're in this internal world, and they're asking themselves the question, how does what he said make me feel? And you know, this is the only person on earth that can answer that? You. And so you go inside. Well, since you're the only person that can answer it, you're inside your own head. And you know what this leads to? It depends on your personality type, but I can guarantee that this kind of dialogue will lead to one of three responses from you. One is defense. I don't smell bad. I don't smell bad at all. No one has ever mentioned that to me before, ever. I do not smell bad. And I go to work and I am with people all the time and I'm a taxi cab driver and nobody, and as people are in my car, no one's ever, it's a defense. Or a different kind of personality type is the counterpunch. I don't smell good. <laughs> I'm sorry, are you saying that I don't smell good? Have you had a smell of yourself? <laughs> you stink. I can't believe that you would have the gall to, now that's a counterpunch. Or there's a third kind of um, personality type that just withdraws. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And then they go home, why did he say that? Why though? You know what? It's because we went inside our head and we asked one selfish question. How does this make me feel? And here's the really bad news is that we're totally on autopilot. We don't even know we're doing this. Someone doesn't come and say, hey, you guys smell bad, and you say, oh, what's the question I always ask? Oh, yeah, I remember. How does this make me feel? No, it just goes. It's just on autopilot. And you know what? Something very destructive is happening when we're on autopilot. God is looking down on the situation. You smell bad, internal, internal, internal. God's saying, these guys over here, hey, look, angels, these guys over here, we can put the label bad listener on them. I'm not saying Pastor Don's right, but I am saying they're not listening. Put, put the label, angels, go label all these people bad listeners. He is giving pages of dialogue about what he means by bad smell, and they're not listening to a word. But in our minds, we're not putting the label bad listener on ourselves. You know what label we're putting on ourselves? Victim. You guys, you really do smell bad. 
oh man, this makes me feel terrible. Now I'm embarrassed and all these people are hurt and I don't even think he's right. At the same time, God is evaluating us as a bad listener. We're evaluating ourselves as a victim. And by the way, this is why it can never work out. Because I'm coming to you with this conflict because in my mind, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that in my mind, I have been offended by you. I am the victim and you are the perpetrator and I'd like to talk to you about it. How does this make me feel? Not very good. Now I'm all upset. Now I'm all self-conscious. And now you place upon yourself the label victim. And by the way, who's the, vi- who's the perpetrator? Me. Because I'm the one that told you you smell bad. Can you see how this is not going to work out? We both think we're the victim. And we both think the other person is the perpetrator. This is exactly what Matthew 7 means when it says we see the speck in our brother's eye, but we don't see the plank in our own eye. And we don't see the plank in our own eye because we never ask the question. We go right to the question, how does this make me feel? We're on autopilot. Let me just say one other thing before we get to the rest of the verse. Not only are we on autopilot... But this is just a manifestation of our own insecurity in the Lord. I know that's tough to hear, but let me just say it again. This is just a manifestation of our own insecurity in the Lord. The reason why we get so offended when we say, you guys smell, maybe I'll pick on these guys, you guys smell. The reason we get so offended is because we think, oh my goodness, now myself, my reputation is up, to, up uh, for grabs. My worth in this church is up for grabs. Pastor Don could really damage me here with his words. Friends, when we're secure in the Lord, we can say, maybe he's right. Maybe I do smell. But even if he's right, God still loves me. And I can fix smell. When we're insecure, we actually think our value is at risk. We actually think the person can take away something of value. When we're secure in the Lord, when we know He's given us everything we need, we know we can listen to the other person and know that they might be right. But even if they are, God still loves us. We're still a brother and sister in Christ. We're still going to heaven. There's nothing to defend because Christ has already defended us. We often give an answer before we hear and we don't even know we're doing it. And you know what happens when we do that? The rest of the verse. He who give, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Those are two very different words, folly and shame. Folly in the book of Proverbs is the opposite of wisdom. There's wisdom and then there's folly. They're opposites. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs simply means skillful living. Skillful living. Have you ever had a renovator come in and do your business basement? And they're just skillful. They just know what order to do things to minimize the work. They're never going back to the store because they forgot to buy something. They're never taking a ton of stuff back because then they realize they didn't need it. They never forget to paint the walls before they put the baseboards on. They do everything in their, in their particular order. They're just skillful. And when it doesn't, matter, it doesn't mean that they're any better than you, but at doing basements, they're better than you, and they just save themselves all kinds of pain, all kinds of work, all kinds of time, all kinds of expense because they are wise in the ways of basement finishing. Well, 
When we answer before we hear, it's folly. And we are like the basement renovator who doesn't know what he's doing. And we put the baseboard up and then we start to paint the wall. Oh, wait a minute. Now I got to do all that cutting in. I, I should have probably, oh man, it's too late now. Or they put the carpet in before they paint the walls. Oh, now I really, oh, how am I going to do this exactly? When we answer before we hear, we are asking, we are just begging for relational conflict. We are begging to be upset all the time and to be with people who are upset all the time because we are finishing our basement in a very haphazard, foolish way. And not only is it folly, which is not a moral word, you can be um, unwise in the way you do your basement and still be an excellent person. You're just going to spend a lot more money and a lot more time and have a lot more frustration because you don't know what you're doing. But it's not a morally bad thing. Shame is a moral word. When we answer before we hear, it's our shame. We should be ashamed of ourselves. How do we stop this cycle? How do we actually start to apply Proverbs 18, 13 and start to become better listeners? I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is, is it's simple. It is really, really simple. The bad news is it's not easy. But did you know that? There's a difference between simple and easy. It's simple to lose weight. It's just not easy. It is simple to change this pattern. It's just not easy. And here's the only thing we have to do. When someone brings us a conflict, when someone's not happy, all we have to do is change the question. If we change the question, everything else changes. If we change the question from how does this make me feel? Not very good. And why does he get to say that? And how dare he? And who else heard? And oh my goodness, how will I ever live this down? And what? Missing three pages of dialogue. We take out that question, how does this make me feel? And we put in this question. Is there any truth to this? I'm secure in the Lord. I'm happy to hear that I smell bad. As a matter of fact, I would like to hear that I smell bad because who knows how many people I'm offending with my odor and you're telling me what a brotherly thing to do. I'm not at risk here. I'm still God's child, whether I smell or not. We can ask the question, is there any truth to this? And that single question changes us from victim, why do you keep doing this to me, to student. And now another dialogue starts in my head, but a dialogue to which you have the, question, the answer. So I start talking to you instead of myself. Don, you smell bad. Thank you. Thank you. Do you mean like body odor? Or is it kind of like a food thing? Or actually, is it my body? Or is it my breath? Or my clothing? Or my hair? And how long have you noticed this? And have other people noticed this? See, now I'm still having a dialogue, but I'm having a dialogue with you. I'm getting actual data. And now you're feeling listened to, and we're trying to solve a problem. I've moved from victim to student. Or what if you really are being unchar un 
fairly charged. What if someone just comes up to you and they are mad as a hornet and they are just accusing you of things that you're pretty sure are untrue and they're doing it in a very abrasive way in a very public way, and it's pretty clear that they're doing it because they want to hurt your feelings? Well, if you go inside your head and you say, how does this make me feel? We're done. We're done. Matthew 18 stops working, starts working in reverse. Five minutes later, kaboom. If we change that one question from how does this make me feel to what is God showing me about this person's heart? They're obviously very angry. Is it genuinely about me? Or is it about their family and I'm just the safest outlet? Or is this just destructive habits they've learned? That one question changes us from victim to pastor. And Matthew 18 starts to work in forward instead of reverse. I'm so passionate about this topic because I have experienced it. I want to tell you a story. I have permission from my wife. It involves her, so I have permission from my wife to tell you this story. This happened about 12 years ago. Um, I need to give you a little bit of background. Our family has a trailer at Muskoka Bible Center, a beautiful Christian camp not far from here. We've had a trailer there for 25 years. And about 12 years ago, when our kids were going to Liberty University, uh, I came to Sandy and I said, you know, I, I think I have some bad news for you, honey. I'm pretty sure we have to sell the trailer. And by the way, I don't know how your family runs, but in our family, I don't make the fan financial decisions. We do that together, but I do track the money. I track the money into the account, I pay the bills and so forth, and Sandy's a beautiful, submissive woman. I don't mean doormat submissive, I mean biblically submissive. So I was pretty sure what she would say is, oh, that's too bad. That's really disappointing, but I trust your judgment, and uh, if we have to do it, it's a shame, but we have to do it. That's not what she said. She said, you're wrong. And I went inside and I said, well, how does this make me feel? Challenged mocked. So I said, uh, well, no, hon, I, I don't think I'm wrong. I think, you know, I, I've done, gone through this pretty carefully. Now, I said it in a nice tone because I am an extremely mature Christian. <laughs> but she said, uh, not only do I think you're wrong, I think you think about money too much. To which I lovingly responded, you're selfish. You're telling me we can't sell the trailer because it's a real blessing to the kids and they need to be up there all the time. The kids are going to university now. They're not coming up to NBC anymore. And you know that. This is about you. You want to sit on the beach with your friends. You want, and you're smart enough not to say that. You have to wrap it up in some mindless God talk and make it all about the kids. But it's not about the kids. It's about you. This is just another manifestation. And I said it in that tone of voice. Well, then she gives as good as she got, and the whole thing starts to go out of control. Now, luckily, we were smart enough to say, you know what? This conversation, the odds of this conversation leading us any place good are very low. We need to stop this conversation. It's not resolved, but we need to stop the conversation, so we both did. We tried it again a couple weeks later and got exactly the same results. 
And we were smart enough to say, look, this conversation is not going anyplace good. We need to stop this conversation. And so we did. And after the second conversation, I took it to the Lord and I just prayed, Lord, please bless our marriage. We don't find peace on this thing. That's what I was saying. I couldn't have admitted it then, but I could admit it to you now. What I was really saying is, Lord, please fix my wife. Because she's so obviously wrong. I know what I make. I know what my taxes are. I know what the mortgage is. I track the money. I'm not an idiot. I run a $100 million business in IBM. I can do this. Why, she, could you just make it so that she can get on this page and stop rebelling and just, just... And you know what the answer I got back from the Lord was? You're not listening. To which I said, yes, I am. I know the four reasons why she doesn't think, no, think we should sell the trailer. Now, where did I get these four reasons if I'm not listening? Yeah, you're listening just enough to defeat her points, which is your goal. The only successful conversation in your mind is you bend her from your point of view and you're going to keep hammering until she comes around your point of view. You are not looking to see her heart. You're looking to win an argument. You're not interested in all in seeing her heart. And I repented. And I went back to my wife and I said, honey, I don't know what the resolution is. I really don't. But God has convicted me. I have not done well by you. Let's try this again. And I'm not going to say anything. I just want to see your heart. My goal in this conversation is not to win an argument. It's not to score a debating point. It's not to bring you to my point of view. My goal, this is a successful conversation if I get to see your heart. And I'm not going to talk unless it's a clarifying question, like unless I genuinely don't understand anything. Did you mean 100 or 1,000? Did you mean Tuesday or did you mean Thursday? Unless there's a clarifying question, I'm not going to say anything. So we have this conversation, and in the conversation, she says, you know, hon, I know you have a point. I, you're not an idiot. I know you're not making up this financial stuff, but I really do think that the trailer is far too valuable to our family, and I don't think it's done, and I do think that you think about money too much. And then she said this. I, by the way, the reason I wanted to sell the trailer is because I knew we could get about $30,000 for it, and it costs us about $4,000 a year to keep it up there. And so I not only need the $30,000, but I need to shed the $4,000 of expense. So she says, look, if I could find a way to make $4,000, could you make this work? And uh, I thought... Yeah, I'll make it work. I'm a pretty resourceful guy. If you can find $4,000 a year so that I don't have to pay that, I will figure out a way to do it without the $30,000 coming in one time. By the way, what are you going to do? And she said, I don't know. There's a grocery store across the way. Maybe I'll be a cashier. And the first pang of self-doubt came into my mind because I remember thinking, wait a minute. If this is all about her selfishness, then why is she asking to do something I know she doesn't want to do? Well, it was springtime, 
So the season was just starting, so she went up, we went up to NBC, and one of the leaders to NBC said to my wife, uh, boy, my life just got a lot more complicated. Uh, one of our key housekeeping staff quit. And she said, could I do that? And he said, if you want to. And Sandy told me. And the second pang of doubt came. Sandy is not a messy person. She isn't. But housekeeping is not her passion. She's not the kind of person that looks at gleaming countertops and says, oh, now I can die in peace. Our house is neat. Our house is neat, but that is not our passion. And so I'm thinking, wait a minute. If this is all about her selfishness, why is she agreeing to clean other people's houses? And by the way, Sandy's not a morning person. No, she doesn't get out of bed at 11, but I would say the normal sand pattern for Sandy is she'd get out of bed at maybe 8. Well, this job starts at 5.30. And I thought, wait a minute. If this is all about her selfishness, then why is she waking up at 5.30 a.m. to clean someone else's pubic hairs out of their shower stall? And why is she putting that beautiful head of hers in someone else's toilet? Well, she did that for six or seven weeks, and then NBC came back and said, uh, oh my goodness, now another bad thing happened. The manager of our general store quit. Do you think you could be acting manager? And Sandy says, oh, you mean like not do housekeeping anymore? Oh, you mean like meet and greet people? Oh, you mean like organize, which is in her total sweet spot? Yeah, I could do that. And then she is acting manager, and she does such a good job, she becomes the, the manager. Can I just tell you something? My Sandy earns $30,000 a year. Something beautiful happened. When we actually started to listen to one another, we found a solution that was way better than either of ours. My solution was sell the trailer, get the $30,000, don't have to pay the $4,000, Downside is you don't get to keep the trailer. Her solution was let's not sell the trailer and hope it all works out. God gave us something better. I get to sell my trailer every single year, $30,000, and keep it because we listened. Because we listened. And by the way, this was at a key time in our life. I mentioned that we homeschooled our kids well, all our kids were moving out in those years. And so there was this enormous hole in Sandy's life, and the Lord filled it with a beautiful ministry that pays me. What a deal. Let me just give you five things to think about. Takeaways. Takeaway number one. You're not listening if you're defending, if you're counterpunching, or you're withdrawing. You cannot do both. Very often when I'm counseling married couples and they're fighting, I'll say, wait, 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 wait. What are our goals here? Mr. Husband, what if I could tell you, you can either see your wife's heart or you can win the argument, but you can't do both. Which would you choose? What's your goal? What are you really after? Excuse me, Mrs. Wife, what if I could tell you you can really see your husband's heart in a way you've never seen it before right now, or you can win the argument, but you can't do both. 
which are you going to choose? If you are defending, if you are counterpunching, if you are withdrawing, you are not listening. Number two, let's continue to grow in the Lord so that our security rests in Him and not in others. When our security rests on others and what other people think of us, we're very sensitive about hearing bad things about ourselves because we feel we're at risk. We feel personally attacked. But when we're secure in the Lord, we can hear anything and we can ask, is this true? Rather than, how does this make me feel? One leads to listening. One leads to escalation. Number three, let's change our goal. From defend to discover. We're not here to defend ourselves. We're here to discover what the other person's heart is. Let's change our goal from win to wise. We're not here to win an argument. We're here to become wiser. Let's change our goal from belittle to benefit. We don't have to belittle each other as brothers and sisters. Conflicts are going to happen. Let's try to benefit. Let's invest in one another. Someone else is making themselves vulnerable by revealing they have a conflict with you. Maybe it's valid. Maybe it isn't valid. But you're not threatened. You're complete in Christ. Let's just talk it out. Number four, learn to ask better questions of yourself and of others. And number five, if this is really complicated, if this is a long-standing issue that has really been significant in your lives, I would encourage you to get counsel from your brothers and sisters here at Harvest. Pastor Ian is very wise, far wiser than he ought to be at his age. Use him. Just talk it out. Figure out how we can approach the person and what you can say. And... But if you boil all five of those down, it all comes down to this. Worship team, I'd invite you to the front. We need to focus on God and God alone. The more, when a conflict comes up, our initial response is to focus on, on us. How do we feel? I feel really embarrassed right now. I feel really called out right now. I feel like my reputation is at stake. I feel like you're damaging me. I'm feeling I'm at risk. I'm feeling hurt. Notice the key word in all of those questions? I, 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 I. Why am I always the victim? Because you make yourself the victim. You're not the victim. You're complete in Christ. We are just students and fellow lovers of Christ trying to work out conflict by focusing on God and God alone.